welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. Today you get a car cast. I'm driving to California for the next Czech course at the Czech Institute. That's IMS3, which is Integrated Movement Specialist Level 3. And it's going to be a pretty packed week of me jamming new information into my brain. So I'm pretty excited about that. It's all to help my clients help me help them more effectively. That said, I'm in a car recording with an AirPod in my ear, which sometimes makes my brain feel a little fuzzy. But the point being is the audio might not be amazing. So I apologize for that. Uh, this thing tends to make my S's sound a little slurred. I promise I haven't been drinking. It's just the, the result of me using this AirPod, uh, for my audio and that's what's up. But I think it's more important for me to get some info out to you guys than it is for me to wait until I have the perfect recording studio conditions because well, I don't really have a recording studio anyway. And on top of that, I'm just really, really busy. So if I don't take advantages of some of these opportunities, then I don't get any content out and then that sucks. So I'd rather just give you the stuff, give you the information. And I apologize if the audio is not perfect. My sound wizard will do his magic on it. Thank you, Joel. And he'll do the best he can to clean everything up so that it is legible and audible, audible, not legible. You're probably not reading this. So I'm just going to riff today on a few things that have been bouncing around in my head for a while concepts. And I thought these might be individual pods, but I think it makes sense to actually link two basic concepts together. And one I'll frame in the discussion of my own, we'll say personal evolution in the sport of cycling. I was never one of those riders who was really that great of a climber, even though I had what some people perceive to be a pretty climbery build. Uh, I just wasn't light enough or wasn't powerful enough, however you want to look at it, and probably some of both. I just carry a little too much upper body muscle to be a really good climber. Uh, certainly when I was racing professionally, that is, at the elite level in the U.S., or even when I did race outside the U.S. on the road, which I didn't do a lot of. I raced mostly on the track where upper body mass can actually, it doesn't hinder you as much, and it can actually be quite beneficial, assuming that it means you can actually pull on the bars harder to counteroppose the force of the downstroke of the leg. So, which isn't always the case with upper body mass. So I never was one of those riders who was motivated to really get into, we'll say manorexic mode or starvation mode, because I wasn't on the cusp of becoming this amazing climber. That said, it also just wasn't my mentality. It wasn't something I really was drawn to do. That is sort of have that battle of energy balance versus training load and try to pretty much lose muscle mass in the upper body to be faster up the hill. So, I mean, there are times in my cycling career where I watched my weight and there were definitely times when I recorded my weight and I was conscious of my weight, but I was never a man on a mission to eat, you know, rabbit food and try to be as light as possible to win the Mount Evans hill climb or any such thing. Because it just wasn't realistic for me. Uh, climbing was probably my single weakest aspect of all of cycling. So, especially steep climbs. Uh, and 
maybe I'll unpack why that is. But from a baseline, from a kind of off the couch ability, natural baseline sort of phenotyping, that that was my weak point. So I knew that if I put a ton of time and energy into it, it wasn't really going to benefit me. And as I've talked about in other pods, I kind of found different ways to be successful. I went through a time trial phase and then a sprinting phase slash criterium phase. And then I kind of went evolved into a track racer and a points racer and Madison racer. And I tried to be a pursuiter, but also found I just didn't have enough raw power to be a really fast pursuiter. I don't have enough muscle mass in my legs. So, you know, not quite the ideal phenotype. Most world-class pursuiters have probably 20 or 30 pounds of muscle on me, which is not trivial. They've also got about four, four inches of height on average. I'm about five, nine. Uh, whoa, oh, I'm violating all my metric rules here, my relevant unit rules. Um, I think that's 175, 176 centimeters. And, you know, for racing, most of the time I was around 59, 60, 61 kilos when I was really light. That was about the lightest I got. Uh, at times, I probably average closer to 62 kilos. So if I'm doing my conversion rate, that's around 140 pounds, right around 140 pounds. You know, high 130s was when I was really fighting weight, so to speak. Low 140s, a little more track time, a little more gym time. And here's the thing about that. The reason I'm talking about all this muscle mass and all this total weight, which is not necessarily indicative of lean mass. I could also have been 142 and just kind of been a little pudgy. That happened at certain points too. And I bring that up to remind you that total weight is not indicative of muscle composition. And it's so easy for people to equate those two things. And so easy for riders to get lost in the watts per kilo vortex of negative judgment and and crappiness and world of numbers that you have to be more discerning about the that information to only look at your total weight is just it's no it's not digging anywhere near deep enough to really understand what's happening you need to understand the ratio and relationship between the lean mass and your fatty mass that's the that's the minimum in order to really have a, a real level of understanding of how your body's changing relative to training. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because I, I thought about doing a whole episode on this and I, maybe I'll expand on it later, but there's this concept that's been kind of reverberating in my, in my skull. And it's the concept that I'll call only cycling. Cycling is, as far as I know, pretty much the only sport that actually epitomizes or glorifies what is arguably horrible biomechanical and athletic posture in every other application of power or endurance. That's my opening statement. Now, I'll refine that a little bit. There are some other sports that do, of course, develop riders into a particular phenotype. Uh, we'll say they, they developmentally become, you know, uh, well, they, they adapt to that sport. And as a result of that, they sort of have a certain look about them or a certain posture, certain muscles become more developed, right? All sports have sports-specific compensations and compensation movement patterns and muscular patterns. The question is, you know, what type of sport are you playing and how do those compensations come out? In a sport like basketball, you don't have too many sports-specific movement compensations aside from there's a lot of rotation, a lot of cutting, a lot of jumping, obviously, 
a lot of throwing. So, but it's in the, all those movements are in multiple vectors or planes of movement on a stable surface, but happening very repetitively and very quickly. So you don't see a basketball player look too much like a basketball player. Meaning if you saw a bunch of naked men standing against a wall, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a relatively fit guy who will say represents some sort of athletic body imbalance, not in balance, but in meaning in good balance, in appropriate balance, good function. That's what I'm trying to say. And you wouldn't see a drastic difference from this hypothetical functional human and a basketball player. But yeah, you might see a few things. And of course, they might have some injuries, probably some ligamentous injuries from all the cutting and twisting and turning. But as far as muscular development and postural considerations, basketball players are probably pretty reasonable. Golfers, however, will have a heavy bias towards twisting of the torso to one side only. Right? You see what I'm getting at? Um, tennis players, same challenge. Tennis players will have a heavy bias towards twisting in one direction, most likely. Uh, surfers, snowboarders will have somewhat of a bias towards a lower body rotation to one side with one side foot forward, whether they skate or surf goofy foot or normal, we'll say, right? Goofy foot meaning that you put the opposite foot forward of the, of your handedness. No, sorry, I had that backwards. If you're right-handed, that would mean goofy foot as you skate with your right foot forward, which is how I do it. I'm goofy foot. Most people who are right-handed skate with their left foot forward, drive with the right foot. So thinking about all that, cycling, I will still pick on for a moment and say it is unique because it is a sport that breaks all these rules of biomechanics. There are basic considerations of biomechanics that are considered universal. And when people use terms, people meaning strength and conditioning coaches primarily or coaches in general who are familiar with human movement and are educated in how a body moves properly, educated in what real posture is, proper posture is, when these people comment on athleticism, they might describe a certain movement or posture as athletic and an athletic posture has certain characteristics and cycling violates most of these characteristics even at the world tour level or i will addendum even especially at the world tour level and even unfortunately in mountain biking to some degree not completely but to some degree what are these characteristics okay there's a few of them that are really important one is we want when viewing an athlete from the front and they are engaging in hip and knee flexion, meaning, or an extension, meaning you're pushing up and down with your legs. So this can be in any number of sports, it can be jumping in, it can be in rowing, it can be jumping in basketball, it can be uh, running on the track or running uh, down a football field. It can be cycling, right? So the jumping can either be bilateral with both legs or unilateral with one leg. And during this type of posture, Every sport that I'm aware of, every single one without exception, would regard the most basic biomechanical relationship as correct when you can draw a, we'll say, pinpoint line from the center of the hip, which would be from the front view, basically the center of the femoral head, 
the tibial tuberosity, which is that little funny bump underneath your kneecap, and the second or third toe, which one we don't really care. It doesn't matter that much. And if you draw a straight line through those three points, we should see a straight line, meaning all those are in optimal relationship. So that when you extend and flex the knee and the hip, the knee, this, what this does is it encourages correct knee tracking. And cycling is the only sport, the only one where that is thrown out the window. And so many athletes don't know that this is a thing. Now, there are two origins of this, we'll say, misbelief. I don't want to call this episode a Mythbuster because that's just too damn television. Let's call it a deconstruction of commonly held, falsely held belief systems about biomechanics and cycling. So when we deconstruct these belief systems, what we find is, one, there is a pile of bike fitters who have and unfortunately still are coaching athletes unbelievably to ride with their knees oriented towards the top tube, to put their knees in. And I don't know why this is. I think some people actually think it's aero. There are a few people who think it's biomechanically superior. And I'll just point blank say this is incorrect. You are wrong. We want a proper relationship between the hip, knee, and foot, period. And if when you understand biomechanics and how the body works, this is incontrovertible. This isn't a thing we need a double-blind study on. So don't science me on this, please. This is understanding how the body works. That's what this is. So, well, double science me if you want. If you've got something to prove it the other way, send it to me. I'll do my best to read it and look at it honestly. Not much I'll say. But cycling is the only sport where it disregards this relationship on purpose. Now, it's not to say that the hip, knee, and ankle have to remain in line in all occasions. Obviously, in the real world of sports, that doesn't always happen. You know, look at wrestling, for example, or uh, judo, you know, is another example. Like, these are sports where clearly that relationship changes all the time. And this is about bulletproofing the athlete, you might say, or making them as anti-fragile as possible, which is advisable. And that's also advisable for cyclists. But we want to set up the bike to encourage this relationship. That said, if someone's been training for years with their knees grazing the top tube and we move their cleats to a place that will allow them to have a more proper relationship and they don't also change the way they are delivering power to the pedals, the result will probably be immediate injury for many people, or at least, if not injury, then severe discomfort. And in case you're wondering what the hell I'm talking about, if you're an athlete who has struggled with chronically tight IT bands, for most of your career, and every time you get on the massage table, your IT bands are on fire, this is probably because you are riding with knees that are tracking medially of that line that exists between the second and third toe and the center of the femoral head. Now, how do you fix this problem? Well, I'll just comment on that briefly. There's a couple ways to do it. One is you can consciously try to ride with your knees out. This may work. It probably won't. Because what's the origin of the problem? Where does the power come from? Power doesn't come from your knees. Remember, the relationship of knees is, or these three joints, I'll say, the hip, we might say, is the king or queen. The foot is the prince or princess, and the knee is the slave. So the knee, the poor knee, is sort of a victim of what's happening with everything else. So if you just move your knees out, you can see from that 
part of the discussion, you're probably not going to help yourself. You're probably not going to solve the problem because you're still delivering power from the hip in the same way. So I suggest that the way to help improve knee tracking is to focus on a slight external rotation of the femur in the hip socket, which turns on the external hip rotators, including glute, knee, max, and min, and TFL. So how do we do that? Well, that's beyond the scope of this podcast, but that's your seed planted. Go forth and investigate. There are lots of ways to work on glutein and gluten. And first, we would isolate those muscles if they're not firing well or if they're really weak relative to the strength of the prime movers. Then we would integrate them into the movement of the prime movers. And I would suggest further that a, a more athletic posture on the bike is actually to offset internal rotation of the femur or medial tracking of the knee, which means your knee is blocking the top tube or coming close to the top tube by encouraging this slight external rotation of the femurs. This will always turn on glute med and glute min. Gluteus minimus and gluteus medius are two of the biggest external hip rotators. And here's the thing about cycling. When we ride our bikes, we like to say we make ourselves strong, but we really don't. We don't make ourselves strong riding a bike. We make our muscles more durable. You're very, very rarely producing peak force on a bike. Even if you do maximal sprints, it's only for a couple seconds or a few pedal strokes usually. And then also let's talk about the fact that to gain true strength, you probably need some form of eccentric load. And there is no eccentric load while riding a bike. What does eccentric load means? mean? It means eccentric load means that the muscle is resisting a force while the fibers are getting longer. And this is what actually causes hypertrophy in the muscles because as the fibers are getting longer while they're being, while they're under tension, then the fibers are literally ripped apart. So you look at a muscle after a really hard workout, take some muscle fiber from a biopsy and look at it under a microscope and you'll see everything's just shredded and destroyed. And that's the damage you have caused. Your body repairs that damage and makes the fibers stronger or, and then, then you, the muscle gains strength. That's basically the process. That's a very, very broad overview, quick overview of how you get stronger. During concentric construction, uh, excuse me, during concentric muscle contraction, the fibers are getting shorter. The, the fibers are getting shorter. So this is the equivalent of pushing down on the pedal. There's no eccentric loading in a, on a bike, not on the quads or the glutes. I'll specify that. Uh, there's no eccentric loading on the hamstrings during the up phase, but you should not be pulling up with the hamstrings anyway. That may be the next deconstruction of falsely held modern belief systems about pedaling a bike. So I'm going in quite a lot of detail here to explain that fundamentally when we pedal a bike, we're making our prime movers, our quadriceps, and hopefully our glutes and our calves and our hamstrings more durable, not really stronger. But in order to deal with repeated pedaling, which is really extension, unilateral extension of the hip and knee repeatedly, that's biarticular extension and flexion. In order to handle that, what we need are stabilizer muscles. And those stabilizer muscles include things like external hip rotators and internal hip rotators, 
adductors and abductors, and also core muscles. But none of those muscles are worked during cycling. So the more you ride your bike and the less you do to condition these muscles in other ways, the worse your muscle tension relationships become and the more out of balance you become. So cycling is a sport that promotes poor adaptive responses to load and makes you less stable. It also makes really weak feet and ankles because we're pedaling around in carbon fiber flippers all the time. And the carbon fiber flippers that we use are actually really poorly designed because they all have forefoot bias because they have toe spring and heel rise. So we're, and then we put an axle near the ball of the foot. So we have all these problems that add up to make an athlete more quad dominant. But cycling even inherently does not do a good job of training external and internal hip rotators as stabilizers. So what happens is you form core musculature. So you get further and further out of balance. Your prime movers in the sagittal plane, that's the quads, the glutes, the hamstrings, and the calves, become stronger and stronger and stronger, or really more durable, more durable, more durable. But we're not working the glute medius for glute minimus. We're not turning them on. And after a while, there is the rule. You don't use it, you lose it. This is, this is true in this application. So cycling promotes and accepts culturally out of complete ignorance, unathletic activities and postures. That's number one, knees tracking the top two. This is a disaster. No other sport would tolerate this. Excessive pronation or supination, which means excessive knee tracking medially towards the top two or externally. And I see a lot of athletes out there riding their bikes with their knees flicking way out to the side. And this is a sign that their external rotator of the hip are probably way too tight and it's pulling the knee out of the top or they're overweight and they literally can't flex their knee up past their belly or their glute, their whole posterior chain is so tight that at the top of the stroke, the knee has no choice but to go out laterally. And this is because it's a little easier to flex the hip. That is to pull your knee up towards your chest when the Flexion becomes very acute, meaning the closer it gets to your chest, it's easier for the femur to clear the hip if you widen things a little bit. So when riders pin their feet to the cranks and then pedal with their knees near the top tube, the complications we have are they have stretched but weak external hip rotators. That's the glute meeting glute min and TFL, tensor fasciolata which turns into, it's a muscle that turns into your IT band, stretches the IT band constantly. So your IT bands are already overstretched. So if they hurt and you're stretching them and foam rolling them, you're actually kind of making things worse. That's not going to correct the problem. That's just a band-aid. And that medial pronation of the knee, when the knee, when the femur turns inward, rotates inwards, and the knees track towards the top tube, that's also very commonly indicative of poor lower abdominal tone. When the abs are firing, the pelvis, the position of the pelvis is maintained, and all those muscle relationships stay in balance. But when that pelvis is hyper-rotated, or the ab tone is really poor, and the opposite is true, it's tilted backwards which is more common in cycling. That's a posterior rotation of the pelvis. Then we, the result is commonly pronation. 
So people wonder why their lower back hurts and they come in for a bike fit and they want me to lower their saddle or raise their saddle. And there's a whole discussion that happens around all these other things. And this is why raising and lowering your saddle won't fix these things because it's not about your saddle height. I mean, yes, your saddle height will contribute to hip drop. Yes, your saddle height will cause you problems if it's way too high. For sure. Of course, if your saddle's 15 millimeters high, then you'll probably be more sore in one IT band. You'll be dropping one hip. You'll probably have saddle sores. You'll probably have lower back pain. Very common. But if you have these existing muscle tension relationships that are really poor and we get your saddle height correct, that doesn't mean everything's going to be fixed because you're still pedaling the bike poorly. So that's one. But the second one I've already basically bled over into, and that is there's some dude with a Lexus and a really cool muffler ahead of me. So you can probably hear that. Those mufflers are so cool. They make your sound, your car sound so much more awesome. They're just so broomy and racy. So the next one is a flexed spine. Again, this is only cycling. Cycling is the only sport that allows or even glorifies or idolizes a flexed spine. And what do I mean by spinal flexion? Pretty simple. The proper way to bend at the hip is in fact to hinge at the hip and the relationship of your vertebrae don't really change. I mean, we have to asterisk that, subnote it and say that while you're in standing ideal posture, you have a normal curve to your spine or really three curves, the lumbar curve, the thoracic curve and the cervical curve. And when we go into a forward bend, if we hinge around an axis that runs through our hips, the center of our hips, that same femoral head reference point, then the sacrum tips forward and the lumbar spine, the thoracic spine and the cervical spine or the lower, middle, upper and neck part of the spines all flex forward at the same rate, meaning there's no flexion in the spine. There's no change in the relationship of those vertebrae. Everything stays just as it was when you were standing and you come forward. There may be a slight loss of the lumbar curve for most people. That's pretty normal. You can measure that with a test called the waiter's bow test, where we pinch the skin on your lower back on either side of your spine. And then we have you bend forward. And when the skin pops out of the fingers, then you've hit the point where your spine, your lumbar spine is starting to flex. Now, only cycling is a sport where that position of the lumbar spine being flexed is actually considered cool or a good thing or normal or arrow or pro. Only cycling. It's the only sport. Every other sport where we put an athlete into a position where they're generating power and their spine is in extreme amounts of either global or local flexion, meaning the whole thing is curved like a rainbow, or there's a sharp kink at one or two vertebra. That would be local flexion. Cycling's the only one that does that. Any other sport would be like, stop what you're doing right now and fix your form, or you're done, you're tired, you're smoked, go home. It doesn't matter if we're talking about rowing. It doesn't matter if we're talking about swimming. Uh, that's a bad example because you wouldn't really flex your spine much in swimming. You have thoracic rotation. But you see my point. Weightlifting, easy example, right? CrossFit, deadlifts. I mean, what is deadlifting and squatting 101? If any of you were to go teach a five-year-old kid how to back squat, put a bar on his back and squat, what would be the first thing you would say to him or her? 
you'd say, sweetheart, don't bend your spine when you drop down. Bend at the hip and the knee. Keep your back straight. That'd be like 101, like A, first lesson. Number two, don't let your knees come in. Like almost anyone who's glued into movement can see that this is really obvious. So why do these rules not apply to cycling? Well, one, the knees, I think, is a fitting thing primarily and a cultural thing. Two is the spine, I believe, a huge part of it is poor saddle design. And to be fair, saddle design has evolved a lot. And in some ways, it took giant steps backwards. Let me explain. When saddles were made of basically a giant sheet of leather that was hung like a hammock on the rails of a saddle, that sheet of leather broke into the shape of your butt and it hammocked down and it conformed over many kilometers, thousand, few thousand K. And it used to be a thing that people would take the same saddle with them from bike to bike because once it broke in, that the breaking in was quite painful and a bit uncomfortable. Well, I'll say probably uncomfortable. I've, I've never actually gone through the process of doing this. This is just what I've read. You can still buy a Brooks saddle today and do the same thing. I haven't done it yet, but this is how ostensibly history went. You broke in the saddle and you sat on it and it was a thing. And that probably allowed for a wide variety of human anatomical considerations to work themselves out. But it was also sort of a poor man's version of a custom saddle. Then we decided everything had to be light and stiff. So now we're making saddles out of carbon fiber and we're making these thermoplastic bases. And then we better add some foam to, to them. Excuse me. And then we better start, you know, making the saddles more light and smaller and more phallic and, you know, dress shoe shaped and all these other things. Because again, only cycling is a sport that real regularly confuses the aesthetics and the form of the tool used with the function. This is one of my biggest gripes with cycling. And I love you cycling. I know I'm fighting you right now. Just bear with me. And so there, it may be that some riders sat with an anterior rotation of the pelvis and thus a straighter spine on these old saddles. But most of the time, probably because of the break-in period, they didn't. They sat with basically what happened is you sat with improper posture on the bike, which meant when you sit down, your sacrum stays closer to vertical and then your spine flexes and you bend over so you can get to the handlebars. And this is the Stephen Roach, Sean Kelly back like a rainbow posture. This is not an athletic posture. It's not a great way to generate tons of power. It's not, if you were to go into a gym and do a, what I think is probably one of the closest exercise to directly applicable to strength on a bike would be a split stance bent over row or a split stance deadlift and you did it with a rounded spine, your trainer would immediately stop you and say, stop doing that. That's an unathletic posture. You're going to injure yourself. But on a bike, for some reason, this is okay. And I'm not saying everyone should be injured because they're riding their bike with a flexed spine. I am saying it's unhealthy. It's an unhealthy way to be an athlete. And it's not athletic and it's not pretty. Because when you understand how the human body is meant to work and you see it in these horrible Ichabod crane, my spine looks like a question mark positions, it looks like crap. And there's some stuff you can't unsee, man. So only cycling promotes this rounded spine posture. Now we've made progress in this with modern saddles. That's made a big difference. 
modern saddles allow riders to ride with an anterior rotation of the sacrum, which has multiple advantages, including just briefly, I talk about these in my fit sessions all the time, superior activation of the posterior chain, especially glute medius or glute maximus, excuse me, superior ability to breathe. Look, if you're going to diaphragmatically breathe, which means when you inhale, your diaphragm pushes down and your viscera or your guts pop out and your stomach pops out like you've got a big Buddha belly, this would be correct breathing technique, by the way. If when you inhale, your chest goes up and your stomach goes in, you have an inverted breathing pattern. Seed planted, go forth and dig. If you breathe in and your diaphragm pushes down and your viscera expand out, but your spine is flexed, you're effectively folded over your diaphragm. You're folded in half at the diaphragm. So you now you can't breathe. Not properly anyway. And at this point, you're probably wondering, well, how the hell did Sean Kelly win all these bike races like this? And the answer is, Sean Kelly is a mutant. He's a freak of human biology. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. He's the 0.1 of the 0.1%, the elite of the elite. And he probably had a massive VO2 and also that unshakable Irish work commitment, ethic. And he's just a badass. So please don't make the logical fallacy that is the instantial generalization. What I'm saying is don't go find a pro rider who wins a bunch of bike races in that spinal flex position and then say, well, these principles are wrong because Sean Kelly wins a ton of bike races. That is not the correct way to look at how this works. Human variation is infinite and we can always find an exception to the rule of someone who succeeds in spite of, not because of. So this is why we don't emulate all of our professional riders, even though we think that they're the neatest people in the world and give good interviews and we're sure they're not doping and they won this race in the most charismatic way. And it just made us feel like they were the person to root for because they're the new future of the sport, which is a whole thing that I don't, to be totally honest, quite understand. Like, why is it that riders aren't interesting when they've been winning for a while and when they're new and young, they're more interesting? I don't really get that. To me, someone who plays chess on a bike and is a good athlete is amazing. I don't really care how old they are. Maybe that's because I'm old, but it's just how I see it. I'm not wowed by young, talented riders any more than I am wowed by old riders who are badasses. Just my thoughts. So don't make the instantial generalization error, please, in logic. It doesn't apply. The basic rules of biomechanics, th this discussion I'm having is based on the engineering of human bodies, how anatomy works. The rule, the simple rule, muscle, joint angle dictates muscle function, right? That's the rule I'm applying here. And when a spine is flexed, I know you cannot be breathing diaphragmatically, not to your full capacity. I also know that glutes are the utilization of glutes is down-regulated with a posterior rotation of the spine. So don't sit like that. If you're not sitting with a proper hip hinge on the bike, you are doing it wrong, or I'll say less optimally than you can. Work on your hip hinge, work on your lunge. These are the two most basic primal movement patterns in cycling. I'll do another podcast on that later. So only cycling encourages these biomechanical adaptations, these poor postures, and calls them 
epic, you know, calls them something that we should emulate, assigns them some sort of status. These athletes who are in this horribly unathletic posture, I won't go as deep into the third one, but I got to mention one more. And that is the, the rounded pronated elevated shoulders, right? So pronation, keep in mind is always, it's any collapse towards the midline of the body. So you can have pronated shoulders, you roll them in towards your nipples. You have pronated knees. That's when they're grazing the top. You got a, pron- a pronated ankle is when it rolls in and your ankle strikes the crank set or maybe the chain stay. And pronation is not good or bad, but excessive pronation and supination that are not within your control are problematic and can cause injury, especially in a repetitive sport like cycling. And in again, one more time, in no other sport, only in cycling, is a pronated shoulder considered one normal and two even, you know, kind of cool looking an arrow. Like this is not a strong, stable shoulder joint. And you wonder why people are dumping it on basic road descents and grand tours or in the Dauphiné when they've got these twig upper bodies. I mean, there's another only cycling. The fourth one is that the emaciated cyclist who, this one drives me the most nuts, I would say, who could probably not even lift their own 6.8 kilogram UCI legal road bike onto a roof rack of a car. This cyclist is considered something that other people want to strive to achieve. This is not athletic. And if you're an amateur bike racer, if you're paid hundreds of thousands of euros or millions of euros to win a grand tour and you want to be an emaciated dude who can't do a single push-up or pull-up, then cool. And you want to have your shoulders pinned to your ears all the time, then okay. Like I, I actually don't have any problem with that. But it's the confusion. It's the emulation of these people as idols that the amateur cyclist works towards. This I have a big problem with. The amateur who thinks that this is the way, that this is cool somehow, that this is a thing they want to do. And I know this gets super judgy and bitchy because I'm basically telling people how to live their lives. I'm really not trying to do that, actually, though. I'm, what I'm just saying is I'd like you, if you find yourself in this category, if you're worried about doing push-ups because you don't want to gain muscle mass because you're not going to do as well in your local Strava climb and you can do less than three pull-ups, this is, you're not a functional human being. You need to be able to lift your own body weight off the ground from a horizontal position. You need to be able to climb up a small cliff. Like this is, this is basic survival thing. Like we should have a, a baseline amount of strength. I'm not saying everyone has to go out and become Joe Weider or Arnold. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not either of those people. I'm still a pretty skinny dude by a lot of people's standards, very skinny, but there's a baseline of human strength and function that all people should strive to have in their world of health. And so if you're an amateur and you're in that mode where you can't do more than three push-ups or pull-ups and you're trying to eat more spinach and you're worried counting your carbs because of your local Strava climb and your belief system is telling you that it's cool to be a super skinny bike racer and walk into the coffee shop with an extra, extra small jersey, I can tell you that from a biomechanical perspective, you're making what is, how do I phrase this? You're making poor health choices for yourself long-term. Like straight up. 
there's a high probability you're going to have back problems, shoulder problems, bone density problems, nerve impingement. Not to mention that if you have to, I don't know, have strength for some reason in daily life and you don't have it, you may not be able to meet the needs of that task. Strength's really handy. You know, when I get our delivery of six three-gallon glass water bottles from Eldorado Springs once every two weeks, I have to pick up those water bottles and put them on the on the water distributing device, whatever the thing's called, so that we can, you know, drink the water I paid for. It's the cleanest water I can find. This is really important. It's a fundamental of health. But a three-gallon glass jug of water, I don't know how much it weighs. I've never weighed it, but it weighs a lot. And it's kind of awkward and the water's sloshing around. So I take it as an opportunity to test my functional strength. And when I grab them, I grab them by the collar. Not That means they don't have a collar that I can grab onto with a handle. I just grab them by the spout, I guess. And I lift them with one hand. And this is a one-legged deadlift. And then I carry the jugs into my house. And I'm not trying to tell you how cool I am. I'm just explaining that strength is a thing that's really handy in life, you know? So, I don't know, go do some push-ups. That's what I'm saying. Only cycling. It's a sport that's pretty screwed up in some ways. And I'm just encouraging people to really examine their belief systems and how they live their lives around this sport. If you lost 12 seconds on your local PR for your Strava segment, but you gained the ability to do things like a few dips, push-ups, and pull-ups, and actually had a tiny bit of upper body mass, and your posture, the posture of your shoulders was better, and also, not incidentally, the hand numbness went away because your shoulders got stronger and more functional and were less elevated, that is, your shoulders being pushed up your ears and pronated, that is, pulled inwards towards your nipples, and you walked with better posture, this would surely benefit your life in many ways. These are my thoughts for the day. I'm going to close it off here before I ramble on. And I hope you enjoyed this bit. If you have comments on my rant, that was a bit of a rant. It was, it was almost Dennis Miller style, except nowhere near as good. Please hit me on the Instagram. Uh, I love the comments. They help me. I'm not always perfect at getting back to them super fast, but I will get back to you on that stuff. Thank you for listening. Uh, next week, I'll do something else on the drive back. I'll probably talk about some of the things I learned in IMS3 because the course is going to be amazing and that's what's up. Hope everyone is well. Thank you for listening and bonjour. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor, so... Don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident. Gratitude. Gratitude.